Welcome to the Keenan Yoga Podcast. I am your host, Adam Keenan. This podcast is about expanding your perceptions of yoga, inspiring and supporting your journey with it. We endeavour to interview one new guest a week and continuously find a never-ending stream, to be honest, of interesting subjects from, from Ashtanga Yoga and beyond. If you'd like to support this project, please head over to keenanyoga.com forward slash yoga hyphen podcast where you can make a contribution. So today's guest is Carlos Pameda. Originally from Spain, Carlos discovered meditation at a young age, subsequently spent 18 years of his life as a monk, many of these in India, in the Saraswati lineage. He holds two master's degrees in Sanskrit and religious studies and is working on a book, Karma Yoga and the Journey of the Soul, as well as the translation of Sanskrit, in Sanskrit of the seminal Kashmiri tantric text of Shiva Sutra. Carlos is a non-dogmatic gentle and deeply knowledgeable teacher who, whose emphasis is really on making the often obscure and complicated teachings of yoga available to all people and relevant to daily life. Our chat is along these lines. It takes us into talking on why the Yoga Sutras isn't inherently compatible with Hatha Yoga practice, as well as his love of a good cheesecake. So I hope you enjoy this episode and don't hesitate to give us feedback if you do, as well as reviewing us on iTunes. Welcome, Carlos, to the Keenan Yoga Podcast. So welcome, Carlos, to the Keenan Yoga Podcast. Um, thanks for coming and being on. Thank you. Great. Um, so normal questions. First, how did you get into yoga philosophy? Um, I suppose, what's your background and, yeah, your entry to yoga? Uh, yoga philosophy? It was one of those really destiny things because I didn't even know what yoga was. <laughs> and I was 17 years old and I remember the same year I saw a poster for meditation and I just felt something inside me said, you have to do this. And I didn't really understand what it was until, until I learned. Same thing with Hatha Yoga. I remember I seeing a poster for Hatha Yoga. I remember it was Swami Vishnu Devananda. And, um, and I wasn't clear what Hatha Yoga was, but same thing, I felt I have to do this. And this was when you were and, 17? Yeah. And that was in, and you're, right, in, in Madrid, you grew up in Madrid? It was so. in Madrid, uh, where I grew up. So it must have been very unusual at the time. Very unusual. It was very, yeah. And in fact, when I, when I learned to meditate, my friends would like make jokes, you know, about meditation. Yeah. Because nobody knew what it was. I mean, now it's so mainstream, but in those days it was like a strange thing to do. <laughs> this is how people perceived it. And so I bought a book on Hatha Yoga before I took any in-person classes. And it was an interesting experience because as I was reading and practicing, I had the feeling that I already knew how to do this. It was really interesting. Right. So, of course, if you believe in reincarnation, then, well, yeah, it, was, yeah, it makes sense, right? It was more like a remembering of something than uh, learning something new. So, it felt very, very familiar. And for two years, I practiced on my own, both meditation and Hatha Yoga. It changed my life. And then, um, you know, as I met my guru, I went to India and then ended up spending on and off many years in India studying in a traditional setting, you know, living in an ashram where you just immerse yourself in. So first of all, how, how did, so you were 17 and how did, I mean, you know, and living, I don't know how old you are now, but I suppose living, I mean, in Spain that time, I mean, even Spain when I first, we were contacted it in the early 90s when I was traveling, you know, it was, 
it was a you know it was quite a conservative and catholic country right and you kind of doing this yoga and meditation i mean that must that must have been dramatic for your family and for people around you and how 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 you know and becoming maybe god forgive forbid you became vegetarian and didn't eat hamon anymore or something you know and you, i was already vegetarian from oh were you okay so how did i mean how did that how did that transpire how did that look in your life when you were still in spain that was the um yeah, my sister was always interested in cooking, very good cook, and she got interested in vegetarian food and said, look, this is healthier and so on, and you don't kill animals and this and that. And I, I started eating vegetarian food and I loved it and I felt better. So I think I was like 14 at the time, something like that. So You must just be an outcast. A little bit, a little bit in, in that sense of being different in those days. But interestingly enough, to, to your point, because nobody really knew what yoga was, <laughs> even though it sounded exotic, they had no reaction because they didn't really know what it was. Right? <laughs> With meditation, as I said, people like some friends would make jokes. Even, even my father, or, um, in the beginning, before he actually started meditating himself, he would crack jokes about meditating and going off into some of the plane, you know, things like that. But basically, I think the ignorance, the general ignorance was helpful in that people didn't really know what to make of it. <laughs> didn't find any resistance, because I remember coming over you know, and, and people were kind of thinking, well, is it maybe anti, anti-religious or some kind of form of, you know, kind of devil worshipping or something? That came later. There was a whole reaction in which anybody who... You know, like you were suspected of being in a sect or a cult or whatever. And, and there was that whole, uh, originally there was like an overreaction against groups that were questionable. Right. And um, that, that came later. And that's when the church started getting really, really worried. And they were losing the monopoly in Spain anyhow with the arrival of yes. democracy and so on. Uh, but originally nobody knew. <laughs> when I was in the army, for example, because I had to do military service, yeah. uh, the I had a picture <laughs> on my, you know, you have your little uh, cupboard, right, where you put your things yeah. in. And people thought that I was doing martial arts, yeah, because this is what they thought. They were like, they, they couldn't tell the difference. No, my dad used to think the same for many years. I kind of, <laughs> I think, believed I was doing some kind of exotic form of martial arts. Um, <laughs> So where, so where was that? Like, just to kind of contextualize this this journey of yours, is it from the nineteen eighties? No, that? I started nineteen seventy four. Right, I was being um, polite in terms of age. Um, obviously, I'm assuming you're, you're looking so young today. Um, <laughs> um, and then, so 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 then to fast forward, you, after a couple of years of that, you you were you're so ensconced in yoga and meditation, you. You found your guru in Spain, or, or you, you decided to book a plane to India and, and find someone there? Well, how did that a go? Friend, a friend of mine told me, he said, you know, there's this teacher from India who gives a lot, and I'm going to go meet him, and are you interested? And I, I, again, I sort of heard myself say, yeah, which didn't make sense because I had different plans. But it was, again, one of those things that um, is sort of destiny again, because... Uh, she ended up not being able to come, and my sister and I ended up then going and meeting him, and then having a really powerful experience in meditation. And, and who was that? Something that completely, completely changed my life. It was Swami Muktananda. Okay, and, and whereabouts was he? That was in, uh, he was in Paris, traveling at the end of a world tour and going back to India. And that was just an amazing experience because 
at, at the time, I was an atheist. No, I had, having been um, raised a Catholic and really not finding the theology didn't make sense to me you know, when I became a teenager. And so I sort of drifted. In. It was an atheist. I didn't believe in the, in the ideas of God that I had been given. And I had this experience where I, I realized it was pretty an experience of, of samadhi, transcending my body, my mind, and experiencing myself, my own being, as this. It's so hard to describe, but like a like an infinite ocean. And that was um, in, in Paris or when you'd gone to India? It was in Paris. It was in Paris. Okay. That when I received the initiation in meditation and coming out of that experience, it lasted an hour and then I realized, like, this is what people mean by God. <laughs> you know, after that, I didn't have any problem with the word God anymore because I realized, yeah, it's not. God is not an old guy, right? But it's this, this fundamental being and in those days, I didn't know anything still about the philosophies of yoga or all of this, right? So my, my journey was in, in the opposite direction. It was where later studying, studying philosophy actually helped me to understand the experiences that I Right, had. okay, okay. And you had that experience on the initiation straight away? Yeah, straight away. And well, that's kind of lucky, isn't it? Did it feel lucky or, or were there any ramifications? Incredibly lucky. Incredibly lucky, lucky. okay. It, it, it changed my life 180 degrees. And, and what I mean, I don't, I'm not aware of um, uh, Swami Muktananda's lineage. Well, I, I've heard of the name. What um, what lineage is he from? And is it a Hatha Yoga teaching or just meditation? Will you say a bit more about mostly about meditation? We also did Hatha Yoga. Um, he came from the south of India, and he was also a very accomplished Hatha Yogi. But I think that also shaped how I experienced Hatha Yoga from then on, because then the way I learned it, Hatha Yoga was part of a much larger uh, body of practices yeah. called yoga. And it, it wasn't like, for many people, when they say yoga, they mean asana, really. But, yeah. but for me, it wasn't like that, right? Because getting introduced to the world of yoga, realizing that, well, the basic practice is meditation. Turns out, historically, that has always been the case. I didn't know it at the time. And then all these other practices, including hatha yoga, are uh, tremendously helpful but the core is this discovery of our true nature. Mm. Yeah, you're lucky to have it contextualized like that. Yeah, I, I feel lucky that way. It's harder to go the other way, I, I feel, from asana. Yes. It could easily be a kind of dead-end tour. You could have never kind of extrapolate outwards rather than kind of immediately have the context and asana is part of that. I think it's easy to go that way around. But so, and to what... Uh, you didn't mention what lineage is from, just for people to know a little bit about Muksananda. The tradition is called Siddha Yoga. Right, Siddha Yoga. And yeah. so it is based on uh, the awakening of Kundalini. Right, so wasn't he, did he then go into US? Did he, he form a center in, in the US? Was that the same Muktananda who had he, a he San Francisco? Traveled. I don't know because there's, uh, there's other Swami Muktanandas right in India. But, um, Fair enough, yeah, <laughs> true. But he did travel, he did three tours where he traveled to many countries. And um, it, that is the basis, right? At that time, also, I didn't know what Kundalini was, but it sounded good to me. So, well, Kundalini is awakening. I was on school, I'm all for it. I, mean, I didn't know what it was. <laughs> but the whole idea is that there's this potential in all of us. And when that potential activates, then there's a transformation of your awareness gradually. And, and you had that experience. 
Yes. And and a very dramatic one, something that was undeniable, right? So that uh, way... Was that, and that was at the time or after, later? Uh, both. both. I mean, there was a, a very powerful initial experience, but then, and part of that, you know, I had different visions where you see things. If you talk to anybody who's had the same type of experience, you say that like you understand each other, but for people who haven't had it, sometimes it's hard to understand. There's a type of experience in meditation that is different from any other mode of experience. It's an image that comes to you like in hyper death. It's like super, super vivid, and it comes to you with an understanding, with a clarity. So a vision is very different from a specific image? <clears throat> to give you an example, I had many, but I saw, for example, this, I saw myself meditating in this room. Uh, but I remember the, the blue color on the wall, and I was wearing a, a, a blanket with a line, a blue line, and this and that. I forgot about that experience. Six months later, when I went to visit my sister in Spain, I find myself meditating in the morning, and as I opened my eyes, I realized this is what I had seen. It was the same room with the same color. I was with the same blanket on. It's like, wow. And again, that was like mind-blowing, right? How come I saw that six months before? Another vision I had was of a place that I didn't know. It felt familiar, but I didn't know. And this was, let's see, how many years later? Five years later. Was it five years later? Yeah, five years later, I find myself in India, traveling to Gujarat, and I do a double take. This is the place I had seen. I have forgotten completely. Right? And so that, that type of experience really uh, taught me more, more than volumes of philosophy about the nature of consciousness. What's the significance of the experience? Yeah. What is the significance of, of the experience of foreboding, of, of prediction? Is there any, or, or is it just? It's not, it's not really prediction, it's that every experience is already included in consciousness. Right? And as human beings, we, we journey through experiences, through the infinite potential of experience, on the basis of the decisions that we make moment to moment. Right? And this sequential understand, this sequential experiencing, is what we call time. Uh, that's also how Tantra describes the nature of time, right? It's the, uh, the innate limitation of, of human perception that we can only experience sequentially. And so that was the, that was the, the sense that I got immediately without any, as I said, I didn't know philosophy or anything at the time, right? but realizing that was already within me. And it is not so much um, that sense of like a prediction of the future. I mean, I've had that sort of experience a few more times in, in crucial moments in my life where I've seen something that then maybe two, three years later came to pass, came to be. And again, it, it's a very clear image. So it's, it's undeniable to you, right? Other people may say, oh, you're just imagining or whatever, but it's very different from imagination. So this is just an example of how life-changing those initial meditation experiences were, right? Because it's like, whoa, shaking my understanding of who I am, 
what is the purpose of life, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and at this time, I mean, after after going to India, did you stay there a long time? I, I know from your background, you you were, were ordained as a monk, right? And you spent many years as a monk. Was that in India that you did the, all that? Yes. Yeah, and also uh, very traditional because uh, my guru wanted to do it very traditionally. Um, and so we, we went through all the you know, Viraja home, all the rituals, and in many places they don't even do them for the initiation. But uh, we did that. Now, because of, you know, there's limitations in India, of course, if you're a foreigner, how long you can live there, right? So maximum at the time, if you extended your visa, you could stay for up to three years. So that was the maximum amount of time that I spent at any one time. But altogether, I think probably nine years altogether at, uh, at different points in my life that I spent in India, if we put them all together. And living in a monastery or, um, you know, I mean, how, and where, whereabouts was that? Can you kind of paint that picture a little this bit? Was a, yes, in Maharashtra, just about a um, hundred kilometers north of, of Mumbai, right. Bombay. Mm -hmm. And... Um, that type of life, I also felt very lucky to have been able to, to have that experience. Because when you live in an ashram, basically, it's about practice and study, right? And you don't have any distractions, no TV, nothing like that. Yeah. So that really allowed me, it was like this thirst I had then for, for study, to understand more. And that's when I immersed myself in, in studying the various systems and uh, also, when I found Tantra, right, and realizing, wow, the language of Tantra is really, um, like, like it really speaks to us in the modern world. You know? Right. And um, very, very lucky, really, to have been able to do that. You know, when you don't have any other worries, any other concerns, you can just dedicate yourself to this exploration. I think a lot of people would just be completely freaked out by that, actually. But having... <laughs> Spending even three years in a monastery, just studying all day and meditating. But yeah, I mean, um, yeah. It's, I think it's a matter of personality, right? And also the moment in your life. I mean, what, was it, what, what did a day look like? I mean, what, what, what were you studying? What, what kind of tantra practices were you doing? Uh, yeah, how, what time did you get up? Well, what was the food like? It starts around 3.30 in the morning. Yeah. And then uh, if you wanted, there was like chai. Okay, well, that's a good start. I'll take that. Right. Then meditation. Right. Fair enough. How long? How long is the meditation? Prefer to meditate without tea. It's really individual, but around one hour. Okay, you could do that. Yeah. And then after that, there's a little time in between where you can use to you know fix your room and all of that. Then there's a chant, it's mantra recitation for an hour and a half. After that, there is breakfast and personal time. Then, uh, you know, what is called seva, which is where you do, you know, you contribute to the ashram in whatever capacity. Um, then there is uh, some more mantras, a little meditation before lunch. Then there's a rest period. Yeah, I, I usually would go to meditate um, again in the afternoon. Because <laughs> I don't like to take naps during the day. And I found that even if it wasn't my most lucid meditation, <laughs> But it was better. I prefer that to to a nap. No siesta. Now, many people do it. For me, it doesn't work so well. The siesta it, it makes me groggy. So, but it's personal time, right? So you could use it anyway. Then another period of seva, 
Then again, in the evening, there's another chant mantra. Um, and then in the evening, either there's a combination after dinner, there's a combination with uh, like different mantras or what is called kirtan, which is more of a devotional type of singing, yeah. and little meditation. And that is just so delicious ending the day like that with that sweetness and, and silence. And then go to bed and go to bed very early, you know, like before 10, the lights are out. Oh, yes. But it, I think it always helps in India because they have that kind of, early, like, more like on the um, equatorial, so it's kind of like, you know, gets dark early and, 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 you know, and people do get up really early and go to bed early, I think, because of the light, because it stays all year, it stays like, kind of like similar, doesn't it? And the coolness, and the coolness also. Right, yeah, that's true. And the uh, getting up early with the, uh, they always said about the pollution, that it's less, it's fresher, then it gets, you know, hotter in the day and rickshaws start and then. If you're finished, <laughs> well, I was going to say, um, what was the most challenging part of this time for you? I I don't recall it as a challenge because it's something that I love, and at some point I was studying like more than eight hours a day because it was like, as I said, it was like a thirst, you know, that I had. And so it was more like um, a process of discovery. I think challenge, in terms of challenge, it wasn't external. I cannot point out to anything that I was, oh, that was a challenge for me. Well, maybe the heat, extreme heat in the really hot months, like May or so. so. But not physically. It's more internal, right? That if you, many people think that if you live in Ashram, you're like on cloud nine and it's not like that. It's a very confronting path. If you're really sincere in your journey, you have to confront aspects of yourself that you would rather not. Right. But were there other, um, were there other uh, uh, Westerners there, uh, you know, non-Indians? Yeah, both. Yeah, there were people from all over the world and lots of right. Indians. Yeah, that's going to be like a hot pot of trouble, isn't it? I've, I've lived in those situations before. Well, there's always, when you live in community, there's always going to be... Um, you know, yes. situation where you have to compromise, right? And yeah. somebody pushing your buttons and so that. Yeah. I, I've lived in communities for many years in different situations yeah. and yeah. including the army, right? So that wasn't, um, but again, to me, that's just, it's like par for the course with living in a community. And Swami Muktananda was there overseeing it all the time. Do you have direct relations with him? So you had direct uh, instruction from, from him as, as a traditional guru. Yes. Right, and you, you, and so you. I mean, obviously, you took him as a guru, and you believed in that process of of guru shisha, and that's worked for you, right? Very much so. I think um, these days there is a because sort of an odd reaction, uh, anti guru type of sentiment where people say, "No, be your own guru," which is. Um, <laughs> When I hear people say that. Yeah, it's a bit of a backlash, I think, from... Yeah, it's a backlash. More, yeah, yeah autocratical ways of, of thinking that we've had previously. Yeah. But my experience of having a guru, I always felt very free. I mean, I was... I don't understand. Like, I, I mean, I suppose there are some groups probably that are manipulative or coercive or whatever, but I never felt... I always had the freedom to go if I wanted. <laughs> but, you know... Um, uh, and also my nature, you know, I like to 
I like to think critically and so on, not just accept everything that people tell you. But to me, that is, it goes with the yoga tradition from the very beginning. If you study the early literature, the, the questioning has always been very much part of the journey. So you were able to ask those questions. You, you felt that you were able to ask those questions from, from your guru. And, and Absolutely. And, and that if you don't believe something, uh, don't accept it. Right. I think if you accept something, it has to be honest. And I think a true teacher, any kind of teacher, um, would would foster that right independent thing. I mean, when I when I teach, I never I never mind when people argue with me if they are coming not from a place of just being resistant and silly, but from a place of genuine genuine inquiry. Yeah, inquiry. Yeah, rather than just proving you wrong or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I, to me, that's part of yoga. It's very much. It's important because blind faith doesn't work. It's going to kick you in the in the rear, you know, sooner or later. What was your relationship with with Swami Muktananda then? I mean, was it a devotional one, or you were able? You said you were able to question him, or how does that look as a as a traditional guru relationship? I think that's a kind of interesting portrait yes. to, to paint. Well, I had this fantasy that. Um, Yoga life meant that you know you sat around the guru and talked about lofty things all day. <laughs> and uh, ashram life is very different from my expectation because I realized something that I think is a, is a very common misperception to this day in, in the yoga world that the nature of learning or the nature of progress in the yoga world. Uh, it's not about learning stuff. It's not about acquiring more information and so on. That's easy to do, actually, if you know how to read. <laughs> I think that the nature of progress really is about self-awareness. So self-awareness is more confrontational. And that's why I was telling you like that. If you ask me what was the challenge, I would say that is the challenge. Uh, is, is that looking, you know, having that mirror in front of you. And there's no escape. When people think of the spiritual life is like escape, I think, well, they don't know what they're talking about. It's the other way around. It's living in a city is where you can escape. I can go to the movies and avoid facing myself. You know, I can turn the TV on. I can go on the internet. Um, when you're in a nation, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> right? So, most of my, my point, this was to your question about the relationship. The nature of the relationship actually it's not so much like you get uh, teachings. Of course, there is that type of interaction and that type of time, right, in the schedule. But um, it's more about just the, the daily experience of living in the ashram. Yeah. And in a sense, my experience has been that the guru is not just a person, right? Yeah, the person embodies something, but that the guru, is, the, the way they see it in Tantra, is, I resonate with that, which is the guru is a principle. Right, is the principle of, of grace, of revelation, of, of opening up. And if you are open to that, that principle is everywhere. And so, for example, when you were mentioning, you know, the frictions that happen sometimes in community living, to me, that's part of the process. You cannot separate it. Because if I have a disagreement with somebody, I have to examine myself, right? What's going on here? Is, is this my ego? Is this something that I need to change in myself? Right? Why is this conflict arising? Um, something comes up in meditation, you have to see it. You know, there's so many areas that we are just not aware of. Things come up. Yeah. I mean, the context of ashram life is that you, yeah, that's part of the, part of the play, isn't it, there? 
you know, you have to look at it. You're expected to look at it. That's what, you know, that's what's going on. Whereas, you know, rather in the normal world, in the business world, it might be expected that if something comes up in you, you just try and discharge that to the, you know, <laughs> the nearest victim. And that's okay. Exactly. That, the context of those, of those, of that world, that play is all right. Um, yes, it is. And, and this was in response to your question about the interaction with the guru, that in, in a way, uh, I still experience it that way, that life is the guru, right? So whenever something happened, like the pandemic, right, my, always my immediate reaction is, okay, what's the lesson here, right? What's the challenge? What am I supposed to learn? Right? It, it became ingrained in me. Well, once you, I mean, you had those... A number of years i think did you move to different ashrams i suppose you went to different ashrams or how does that look and then yes when and in, i belong to a monastic order uh the sarasvati order which is a teaching order so that involved a lot of travel traveling many countries and places you know teaching the different courses workshops things like that so that, that has been pretty much a constant throughout my life right and why did you leave monkhood? I'm assuming you, you, you kind of, I, I, I don't know, whether, is it derobed? Was that, was that really right? <laughs> no, it's not like that. I mean, now my, my experience is that the best lifestyle is the one that suits your, A, your, your temperament, and B, um, what you need to learn, right? What you need to grow in. For me, the monastic life comes easily because it's uh, in my personality, I, I like that type of life. But at the same time, I started feeling at one point that the robes were also separating me from people. And it, it, it can be very weird, you know. I realized that mostly the people that came to me didn't really relate to me as a human being that just happens to have this lifestyle. Mm, right. There were two types of interactions. One, people who thought, oh, you know, like he can read my mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's very weird, right? If you're talking to somebody on that basis, that's weird. <laughs> or two, people who just wanted the attention of the Swami, you know, and who didn't really care what you were saying. And so here I am, like giving my best uh, advice and this and that, and realizing the person doesn't really care. They just want some time with me. And, after a while, this type of interaction started really getting to me. And it, very interesting, I cannot tell you how many people came to me after I left the monastic life and said to me, I'm so glad you're not a Swami because now I can talk to you. Right. Interesting. I had that so many times. That's very interesting, right? And um, when you're wearing robes, also people tend to put you on a pedestal, which is very dangerous, right? It's dangerous for them, it's dangerous for you if you, if you accept it. Right? That's part of the problem, I think, with, with interaction between gurus or, or self-appointed gurus and students, this mechanism of projection. And so when you're not wearing robes, that's not there. Right? People don't project stuff like that. So it made for more fulfilling, for me, more fulfilling relationships. Also philosophically, I'm, I don't think what the world needs now are teachings about renunciation or a renunciant lifestyle. I think, that, and that's why, again, I resonate more with Tantra, which is about finding the sacred, finding higher awareness, literally in every situation of life. 
Okay. Um, so I think that's what yeah. we need in the world. Mm, mm. That all sounds very reasonable. I mean, let's just backtrack and clarify Tantra when you say Tantra. I think people have still got funny ideas about Tantra. Um, you know, and the, you know, we don't need to go there, but the obvious ideas about how fun Tantra is. Um, what is, <laughs> you can do anything you want and still be spiritual. What, um, <laughs> more sex you have, the more spiritual. Um, what, what is Tantra in your, you know, having studied it seriously? And I assume you've, you've learned, you, you studied Sanskrit and you did all the rigorous classical training there. How would you describe Tantra for people if they were interested, say, or to learn about more about it? Yes, the, the, the notions that you were referring to, they come from a period when we really didn't have information about Tantra. When I started studying in the 70s, it, there was hardly anything published on Tantra. And whatever there was mentioned, like rituals of a sexual nature and so on. So people... Yes, graveyards and corpses. And yeah, and people started getting these ideas. Now, it is true that in certain branches of Tantra, those types of things uh, do exist to, to this day, right? But mainstream Tantra is not like that. Tantra is a, is a tradition that appears, um, hard to tell exactly when, right? But uh, around probably uh, late 4th century, 5th century, thereabouts, we start seeing the roots of this new movement that in many ways, it's revolutionary in yoga because instead of supporting these traditional notions of renunciation, meditation based on one-pointedness of mind and so on, it starts developing completely new practices. Uh, Hatha Yoga is a perfect example of that, right? Hatha Yoga, actually the roots of Hatha Yoga are within Tantra. And so this system of exploring the body more is, for me, is a perfect example of how Tantra revolutionized the, the field of yoga. Because before, before Tantra, the way people use the body in, in yoga uh, was a something to control, something to subjugate, and something to discipline. And basically, the word asana meant sitting for meditation, sitting in stillness. So in a kind of Patanjali kind of way, really. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so Tantra comes and upends the whole idea, saying, no, wait, wait a minute, the body is not something to be despised, is not something necessarily impure, the way the uh, yoga tradition had seen it pre previously, but it's actually something that contains wonderful things. And it's actually something that you can use to, to your advantage. And from this holistic understanding of the human being, you have a, a whole new approach to yoga. Something similar happens in meditation. Tantra, in a way, explodes that notion that meditation is only about one-pointedness. To be sure, I mean, Tantra accepts that, right? It doesn't, it doesn't reject it because it works. It works. It's centuries and centuries of evidence of that. But what Tantra does is revolutionizes that. It develops all these methods, for example, of the visualizations. Yeah. Yeah. Right, the uses of, of yantra, the use of, of visual imagery, what's called bhavana, all these techniques. It's really revolutionary. It's not an exaggeration to use that word for tantra. So for me, if you ask me, okay, but tell me briefly, what is tantra for you? I would say, well, it's a, it's a system or a, or, a, or a collection of systems, rather, right? traditions, that teach us how to, uh, as I said before, how to find transcendence in the most ordinary things. Right. You're eating your breakfast, you can be working on expanding your awareness in any situation. Right. To me, that's the, that's the key. And that's why I think 
it's so important in the world, right, with all the challenges that we have. Because if you, if you favor a tradition of renunciation, the world needs our engagement right now. You mm -hmm. know? I mean, look at the environment, look at climate change. We have serious crisis in our hands. And what we need are teachings that can help us to be engaged. So what I'm thinking now then is why, if, why is the yoga sphere taking the yoga sutras to heart so much if it doesn't seem particularly appropriate to, to the yoga asana that people are involved in and yet suddenly they get on a TT and it's like, well, here's the Bhagavad Gita, here's the yoga sutras. You know, does it seem that they're necessarily the most appropriate text then? And if so, do you teach the yoga sutras? Um, I'm sure you've been called on to teach the yoga sutras and, and, and from what perspective would you teach them then? I'm so glad you're asking this question because um, I, I do teach the Yoga Sutras. I find them incredibly helpful, uh, particularly now that we know there's been a lot of new research on Yoga Sutras, which it hasn't quite percolated yet <laughs> to the broader yoga community. Um, I love it for meditation. Now, if I were a Hatha Yoga teacher, though, I would not bring Patanjali into the soup because Patanjali lived several centuries prior to Hatha Yoga. Now, when I started, uh, this was a common mistake, and it was understandable at the time, right? Because we didn't know any better. That people saw the word asana in Patanjali, they assumed that referred to Hatha Yoga. They see the word pranayama, also he must be talking about Hatha Yoga. Now we know that was not the case. But, you know, he was talking about meditation. Uh, and so then there's from the Vaishnava tradition, uh, and there's been like a couple of, of precedents in history where they started trying to bring Patanjali, their boy, <laughs> so to speak, right, into Hatha Yoga. So there was this present, and therefore from, from Mysore, which has been so instrumental in spreading Hatha Yoga all over the world and so on, uh, the Hatha Yoga that has come, you know, from, from Krishnamacharya and, and his, uh, his disciples, is a yoga that came with this idea, which again, when I say this, I think sometimes people in Mysore may get offended by me. And I don't mean it in a way offensive at all, because I, I really have the highest respect for the contribution, the amazing contribution of the Krishnamacharya lineage. So I don't say it as a criticism or an attack, but as a historical fact that early in the 20th century, nobody knew any better. So, you know, everybody is doing the best they can, right? And the confusion with bringing Patanjali to Hatha Yoga stems from that. So I don't blame anybody. Um, but I do think it's time now to correct the record because we know better and to separate Patanjali from Hatha Yoga. Hatha Yoga has its own method of meditation. So the whole idea that you start with the physical part and then you sort of graduate to the Raja Yoga of Patanjali, which, by the way, shouldn't be called Raja Yoga. That's another story. Um, uh, that is also incorrect because Hatha Yoga is self-contained. The original method of meditation in Hatha Yoga is what is called Nadanusamdhana. It's a type of, of mantra-based meditation. It's about hearing the inner mantras and so on. Completely different premise from, from the meditation of Patanjali. Yeah. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring Patanjali in the picture. Having said that, I'm teaching, for example, a study group now uh, with uh, a group of students in Turkey where we are reading the commentary, because the commentary that we thought was by somebody else, right? Yes, it turns out it's by Patanjali himself. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so reading the commentary illumines the sutras in a wonderful way. And what I find is that it's one of the best texts for meditation. I mean, the depth of the treatment of meditation 
I think it's a pity that everybody jumps to chapter two and the eight limbs of yoga and so on. Chapter one, yes. chapter one <laughs> is where it's all at. You know, it's all about meditation. Do you, I mean, maybe the, um, sometimes I kind of think that chapter two is an interpolation from a later date. It seems like they kind of snuck in the kind of a slightly Buddhist feel to some of that, you know, kind of like Maitri, Karuna, Mudita, Pekshana, you know, this kind of kind of Buddhist kind of stuff t- tucked in a way to some a, quite a different text there. There has been that, that hypothesis, but um, and for a while I entertained it, but as I examined the text more carefully, I think the methodology is consistent throughout, though. Right, okay. And in any case, if there were any interpolations, they must have been very, very early on, because by the time that the, the Bhasha is composed, it's an integral work. I think, I think it's more, it's not so much that it's an interpolation, in my view, but more the, a product of how the oral tradition works, right? Because we think it as a book, but that was never a book, right? The, the way these teachings work with oral. Uh, oral tradition tends to be repetitive. And if you look at the structure of the sutras, the teachings, it's always the central kernel is always samadhi, meditation. But every time, with every turn, there's more being provided, more by way of practices. And he gives you the rationale for why we're introducing Kriya Yoga now at the beginning of chapter 2. He says it. He gives you the rationale of why we're introducing the eight limbs now. He says it. <laughs> and there's, it seems to me that there is it's a very cohesive work. And again, the depth when you study it very closely in terms of the understanding of the subconscious, its relationship to karma, the mechanisms of karma, um, the interface between language and awareness, I mean, it's just loaded with really, really gold. I, I really, I love Patanjali for meditation. <laughs> but I would say, please, let's leave him out of Hatha Yoga. <laughs> what text would you recommend then to study in terms of the Hatha Yoga for the Hatha? Because also you were saying this, the Hatha Yoga meditation as well. And I suppose a secondary question, because there's so many different questions I could, we could go from here, you know, so many is that how do you relate potentially then to a tantric perspective? Because his meditation seems to be very much a kind of asceticism or, or almost, you know, kind of up and out, you know, get out of the mind, you know, altogether rather than, you know, the, the mind is to be stopped, to be, you know, subjugated, not to be used at all, right? Well, well it, it's very interesting. If you see what, uh, what was Tantra's response to, uh, for example, the, the Ashtanga, right, the eight limbs of uh, Patanjali's yoga, they adapt them. Which is very interesting. If you say, for example, uh, you look at a medieval text on Vedanta, and Vedanta takes the eight limbs of yoga exactly as Patanjali gave them. No transformation there. But when you look at the Agama literature, right, which is uh, the, the Tantras particularly in, in the South, or even other Northern texts like uh, Malini Vijaya Tantra and so on, they adapted the eight limbs. And usually what you find in Tantra is not eight limbs, it's six. <laughs> which I think is very interesting. Which two are left out? Yamas and Niyama. <laughs> and I think this is very telling because, you know, Tantra is very highly uh, regulated against people's perception. There's a very high importance given to, uh, to the regulation of behavior. But I think people miss the boat when they insist on Yamas and Niyamas so much nowadays. It's one of my pet peeves. Everybody talks. They remind me of the priest of my childhood, right? It's, it is a little bit like that, isn't it? It's like, yeah, oh, like, uh, yeah. The Ten Commandments of Yoga, and I say, no! <laughs> <laughs> 
Because context is everything. And if you look at the context in which Patanjali offers the, the yamas and niyamas, there isn't a single, not even a thread of a moral or ethical argument there. He tells us before, you have to follow the thread of the teaching, that this has to do with karma, it's practical. It, look, avoid bad karma, right? He says that, hey, I'm to come and agatam, right? Uh, future suffering should be avoided. <laughs> Good advice. Right? So that's why the yamas and the yamas are there. So those, therefore, are left out in tantra. Right? It's the, the other six. And in some cases, the other six, they are, um, for example, in, in some lists, uh, Pratyahara is replaced by something like Sattarka, which means um, proper reasoning, you know, the process of studying and refining the mind. So the Tantra adapts them. The Tantra uh, modifies what Patanjali has done, but it echoes it. I suppose there aren't the I mean aren't the yamas niyamas as important though if we're talking about avoiding bad karma and you know even kind of if we take out the value judgment aspect of it that it's simply there's no innately you know inherent good or or bad it's just inefficient behaviors in terms of you know you know your own future destiny right but then you know I mean we may as well say like by dint of you know, it's so close to saying, well, you know, this is bad in society's eyes I and mean, it doesn't does it make any difference whether you say it's bad or it's inefficient. I think it does in the social in the social context. We need rules, otherwise it would be a mess, right? We need to agree. Hey, I'm not going to take your stuff without your permission. You're not going to take mine. You know, I'm not. I'm not going to harm you. You're not going to harm me, right? So that uh, ethics makes perfect sense. Is necessary in the social context, not in the aesthetic context. If you're living in the cave, uh, the context is different, right? Um, and the concern then is more with what type of, uh, of, of mental qualities you are developing <laughs> and how that interferes with your practice. So I, I, I think yamas and niyamas, it's not that they are unimportant, but they are not essential. The essence of yoga is self-awareness. And if you become a good person, for example, you become a good person, but that doesn't give you more self-awareness. They are two different it, endeavors. Uh, that's a good distinction. Yeah, I like Refining that. Refining my behavior is a different endeavor from developing self-awareness. Right. So refining your behavior is a social context of being a good person within the context that we're living eth ethically. Yeah? Mostly. Now, there is, there is some, they're not completely separate realms, though, because going back to your question earlier about challenges that I found in the Asamu, that's one of them. So, for example, if you discover that you have, say, anger, or fear, or jealousy, whatever, right? Fill in the blank. Um, that may actually interfere in, in your practice, in your quest of self-awareness. And so I think part of the quest for self-awareness does involve filing out some of those rough aspects of our personality. But it's not the main, it's not the main emphasis, really. Right, so there is some interface, there is a way in which behavior does affect, um, which again, in the context of Patanjali, is clear, is it creates vrittis, right? It creates mental agitation. Mm. If, you, if you're an angry person, for example, how can you meditate? <laughs> so you're going to have to do something about the anger. It, it's not essential in the pursuit of self-awareness. But it does have an influence too, right? So it's not like it's unimportant. I just think that the emphasis is misplaced. I see so many teachers emphasizing the ethical aspect instead of the self-awareness aspect. And I think that's a mistake. And a disservice to students, by the way. 
What about, I mean, can someone live with possessions then and still be highly aware? Can, I mean, you know, the aparigraha, you know, the kind of, so you can, so you can still live, make, I mean, people often can get confused as well, like, you know, I shouldn't be making money. I shouldn't be, uh, you know, kind of building up, you know, possessions here. Um, or maybe I shouldn't be having sex at all as well. You know, there's the whole celibacy thing. Does this matter to you in your opinions? You're, you're actually bringing up. <laughs> the harm that the Christian heritage has done to us in terms of how to relate to our material existence. I, I think, I'm not against religion uh, in general. I think religion has been also a force for good in history, but <laughs> I think that it has done a number on us in terms of this ambivalence towards uh, the sensual aspect of life which includes sexuality, includes uh, wealth, money. When you look at Indian culture, I think many of us just project, we bring our own spiritual baggage and project it onto the Indian tradition. Look, the Indian tradition, when you look at it, is beautiful in its celebration of sensuality. I mean, India is the land of the Kama Sutra, right? It, we, we think it's the land of yoga. Well, yeah, but yogis were always a minority. Uh, you look at Indian literature, it celebrates life, it celebrates pleasure, it celebrates prosperity, as long as, and that's the key, as long as you don't harm anybody in the pursuit of your happiness, in the pursuit of your pleasure, in the pursuit of your abundance, life is better if you have those things, provided you don't transgress against dharma, right, against righteousness. I find that position very hard to argue with, right? If you read the Artha Shastra, if you read the, the, the Kama Sutra, for example, the first chapter is fascinating because it makes this case that life is better if you have pleasure in it, as long as you don't acquire your pleasure at anybody else's expense. Is this even possible? It, totally, totally possible. Yeah. Sure, why not? Absolutely. And, and, and this is... Um, I think it's part of what Tantra resonates with more, right? It's not the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake, but it's the fact that life is better if you have prosperity. I think you find passages, for example, in the Puranas, right? Later medieval texts, they're very sarcastic. And, and I remember a passage I was reading that said, well, if poverty is so wonderful, then every donkey should be enlightened. <laughs> because they don't own anything. And it's, I think it's very true. I think Aparigraha is an inner stance that uh, there's a difference between how you feel about money and money, how much you have. There's a difference. I've known people who don't have much, who are always worried about money, who are uh, very greedy. And I know people, as we speak, who are loathed and who are the most generous people I've ever met. Right. So you don't think there's any conflicts? There's no conflict between necessarily. We mix between. up the two things, you know. We say, oh, if you're wealthy, therefore you must be greedy. Oh, that doesn't follow. It depends. And so Aparigraha is about... It's interesting to hear you say it, who studied so many years and, and, and have this kind of, what I would see, quite a liberal take on the text. I mean, are you, are you suggesting that throughout all um, the, you know, the traditional kind of spiritual canon that there is this perhaps the more... Um, liberal message of yes. yeah right because i mean certainly you don't you don't see that in the yoga sutras for example 
you actually see it. It's just that I think okay. we've, we've, we've been reading them through our own lenses, through our own right. very heavily Victorian <laughs> color lenses. Yeah. Because, um, uh, again, when you look at Indian literature, it didn't have any hang-ups about sexuality. The rationale for Brahmacharya in yoga is, is crystal clear. It has always been about gathering strength in your body. Patanjali says so, right? Why Brahmacharya? Is that you, you gather vidya, you accumulate vidya, strength, right? Because you need that if you, if you are doing meditation yoga all, all day. You need all your strength. If you're going to hanky-panky, you may be having a lot of fun, but, the, but you're depleting some of that energy, right? But it was never a moral issue. Never. <laughs> and, and when he talks about Vairagya, uh, very clearly in Chapter 1, right, he says, Tatparam apurusha It comes that the, the highest form of detachment is the one that comes from the experience of the self. Right? Contentment. So that's how I understand when you say aparigraha. I cannot pretend that I'm not greedy if I'm greedy. Right? But on the other hand, if I'm content, basically, generally content within myself, that's the best form of detachment there is. Right? That's what gives us the equanimity. Say, oh, okay, I got this. I didn't get it. It's okay. But it's not about pretending to be detached or to, to not care. No, it all comes from, from the inner fullness. And I think, again, because we, we've lost our priorities and we've brought our religious lens to look at the world of yoga, that, um, that we've misunderstood a number of really basic principles. If you make your priority the experience of the self, the way all the, all the texts do, <laughs> including Patanjali, um, then as you develop more of that inner fullness, right, you feel freer inside. Well, what text, I mean, I recognize the clock is ticking now. What, what text do you recommend that people look at then? Because I think often there's all these texts around and it's just very confusing to know where to start. And, you know, they think, well, let's read the Pradipika, but that's the, you know, the, the, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika for some Hatha Yoga instruction on the context of Hatha Yoga, what, you know, what else is around it. But that's kind of obtuse, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, a little bit ambiguous. Where, where would you start? Well, actually, when you asked before, um, the conversation moved on, but I was going to suggest the Hatha Pradipika. I, I've translated it, and it does require careful study as well. There are a number of other texts, right? And now we have a, a very good timeline of the literature of Hatha Yoga, but um, that's still my favorite, because that's where you see Hatha Yoga in a really organized way. Okay. Um, so I would still recommend that in spite of all the challenges. If, as I said, if your interest is meditation, I would say, by all means, uh, Patanjali. I love it. And then the other text that is very popular, I'm talking about the more, you know, the best known text, uh, is the Bhagavad Gita in terms of guidance for life. And I've noticed that when the pandemic flared up, uh, so many people went to the Bhagavad Gita straight, including myself. I find it particularly the first six chapters, I find them really life transforming. And um, it's it's where you find a lot of practical guidance. Okay, just give us a quick, uh, a quick, your quick thoughts on the Bhagavad Gita for people. The Bhagavad Gita, which I would recommend reading it with a commentary, one of the traditional commentaries, right? So you have the commentaries from the viewpoint of Vedanta, right? Shankaracharya wrote one, or from the viewpoint of Tantra, Adinavagupta wrote a beautiful uh, brief commentary on it. 
So I would, that would be my advice. Don't just take the text. And also, no offense to anybody, but I wouldn't go so much with modern authors. I mean, so many people in the process of translating, they are giving you their own version of their own understanding of spiritual life. So I am more, I'm, I'm more in favor of the traditional commentaries. And um, particularly, as I said, the first six chapters, what I appreciate about them is that they are, you know, what is called karma yoga, which has been also very, very misunderstood. It's not really about service or anything like that. When you study karma yoga in the Bhagavad Gita, it's really a teaching about acting with awareness, acting with mindfulness. And I think that is tremendously relevant, and it will always be relevant. <laughs> but that's never going to change. So um, I would recommend, and if you say, well, only one chapter, I would say chapter two. Like, really take your time reading and contemplating and chewing on chapter two. And everything you need for practical guidance is there. So those are three wonderful texts. Have you, has your teaching changed over the years in terms of the way you've approached teaching people? And you mentioned the kind of being not having robes on, having helped the, the kind of immediacy of your relationship to people. I mean, have you become more, let's say, have you gone more to people? Perhaps it seems like maybe you've become more down to earth in the, in the approach. Down to it, yeah, but not because of not being a Swami or not. Because for me, um, yeah. I'm still the same person, right? Whether you're wearing robes or not. Mm, mm, mm. You don't become a different person, right? So <laughs> I don't experience myself differently. But yes, but um, you, you've touched on the point that I've really made an, an effort and my teaching has changed a lot in that sense that when I was younger, I was more comfortable in just the abstract realm of ideas and teaching, right? And yeah, like, tends to go like that. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, particularly what has helped me a lot is having to teach in Asia, having to be translated into Chinese, Japanese languages that are very different. The way then to translate certain things was to ground them with a material example. Right. Okay. And and that led me more and more and more to try to ground. Uh, right. Okay. To contextualize the teachings. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And make them so that people can relate to. Oh, okay. I get that. But personally, I've always thought I don't teach anything that I haven't done myself. Right? Like, I mean, I can teach about Buddhism, Jainism, which I love, but I haven't really practiced any of those in any depth that I feel I have insight to offer. Right? Because to me, insight is the main thing. Insight only comes with experience. So that's the, the part where I have, I have changed, for example, my understanding of Patanjali has evolved over the years because as, as the more you practice also, you read the same thing, right? The same thing that I've been reading for over 40 years. And you go, ah, <laughs> all of a sudden something hits you like, oh, I see. No, I get it. Right? It never gets old. It never gets old. Bhagavad Gita was the first text I ever read. I was 14 years old. I'm still loving it and enjoying it, right? So. Um, in that sense, my teaching also has changed because I think it has to, right? As you as you go deeper into the teachings yourself, you're always going to discover new things. What um, what does your practice look like today? Then, if you don't mind me asking, what kind of the main one meditation, but also I love the not only the formal one. I love the meditations that you find in tantra. Uh, sometimes they are called dharana, which are you know, mindfulness practices to do when you're eating, when you're walking, when you're sitting outside, just contemplating nature, 
There's so many practices, literally hundreds of them in Tantra. And because I've been doing them for so long, they have become ingrained. I mean, I find myself just doing them automatically, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing different things. And I, I also enjoy, although I don't do it as, um, as often, a recitation of mantras. Um, so whenever I have a chance and uh, study, I find that study, again, not for its own sake, not for the acquisition of knowledge, but as a way of, it's like giving a, a, a holy bath to your mind, you know, it feels that way. It's like, in, in Tantra, they call it the purification of the mind, right? So it's like refining your way of seeing things through, through contemplation and study. So those are my main practices. So you don't think um, yoga asana has any kind of imperative or fundamental root in the whole journey? It does. It does. It's just that as my body, as my body has gotten older, I, I've done it less. But I was very, very hardcore when I was like in my twenties. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen you then. But I do value it highly. I think um, I, I do bastrika. Um, I is it has it always been a, a foundational? aspect of of the the, the teachings yes. yeah okay yeah right i because i think it's just so brilliant like it's so deep uh, so much happens i think it's one of the reasons for the popularity of hatha yoga is that right it goes beyond the, the like the anatomical reasons for fitness and so on right there's something that happens to you 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 feel something lightening up and and you can explain that in terms of subtle body and prana movements and so on right the, the inner purification that happens i i'm still in awe actually of hatha yoga as much as when i started it's just that personally with my body i don't do it as much now as i mm. i suppose the last question i'll ask you is that people generally turn to these texts when they're in need you know like i mean we don't usually go to the these things when we're just having fun in life what um what recommendation have you got in terms of the wisdom of the text or how to or a practice potentially for people suffering in these times with anxiety and feelings of depression is there any any you know i mean you mentioned chapter two of the bhagavad gita is there any particular um you say mantra practice is that helpful um, anything you could say on that for people that might be suffering and, and wanting to use Indian uh, traditional thoughts to help this situation that they find themselves in? Well, what I personally have found very, very helpful, and you know, I felt so much gratitude, like when the pandemic broke, and so on, so much gratitude for having these tools of yoga in my life. Really, it's just an overwhelming sense of thank you, <laughs> um, and. Besides what we were talking about, study, I find it simply just understanding that these two shall pass helps me a lot. Because when we are in the middle of a crisis or a difficult situation, part of the problem uh, that creates anxiety is like we don't see an end to it. Mm, mm. And just knowing, I always picture myself and remind myself there will be one day when this will be in your past. <laughs> yeah. And that helps me to put challenges in perspective a lot. And then the third one is the one that is related to what we were talking about, of the practice of meditation, is that practice of observation. You still have to deal with whatever you have to deal, but if you bring your attention deeper within you, you'll see that there is this, this level of awareness that is not touched by whatever is going on. 
Mm. I think people often say that, you know, in the, in the depths of suffering, and I've felt it myself, there's someone looking at that person who isn't involved in it somehow. And it's the weirdest feeling, because you, you often find that in the very time where it's the most intense, that you're actually seeing it from the outside as well, that kind of creeps in. Yeah, yeah. So those are the three things that I find really... really okay. Mm. Mm. All right, Carlos. Well, we've done an hour. Um, give me a guilty pleasure. What's well, a guilty pleasure and an inspiration of yours just to round this off? Uh, an inspiration could be a place, a book, a person, uh, and a guilty pleasure. Or well, you say guilty, but we don't really mean guilty, so you don't have to worry. Yeah, uh, yeah. because I, I don't feel guilty. No, I well, uh, this is the thing that people can't yeah, I mean, I should, I should have rephrased that question a long time ago. <laughs> Give me a. I love cheesecake. Okay, that's a fantastic pleasure. I, I, I join you on that. I do love cheesecake. I had some well. yesterday. Right. <laughs> what's your favorite? What's your favorite? What? Oh gosh, it, I have several, but um, the the one I keep coming back to is this line from uh, from the Bhagavad Gita, from uh, chapter two: "Yoga staha guru karmani." You know, established in yoga, perform your actions. That's it, right? That's it. That's how we integrate the practice of yoga into everything we do. Establishing yoga, perform your actions. So, like, always find the time to to touch with. So that that's probably my greatest inspiration. Right. Well, you're in the right place for cheesecake in California these days. <laughs> um, so we wish you many, many more happy cheesecakes and. Um, and you know, <laughs> And thank you so much for, for coming on and having this very kind of grounding and pragmatic talk. Um, where I mean, you know, just people can find you on your website, I suppose. Are you doing anything particular that yes. people can join it? Any courses that are upcoming that you might like to? Because, I mean, Carlos is a fantastic uh, resource. Well, he's not a resource, but he, you know, is a very uh, highly acclaimed and recognized, um, you know, teacher of this, of, of yoga philosophy, apart from a lover of cheesecake. So where can where can people find you? What are you doing? On the um, on my calendar, you have all the things that I'm doing online these days, but also on my Vimeo channel. I have a channel on Vimeo, Pomela. And um, I've been putting more things there. And um, right now we're in the process of editing several courses. I just released one on karma and the, the journey of the soul. And we're working now on one on mantra, which is coming out very soon. So that'll be, right now, it will be the main sort of window out, if you will. I don't participate in social media so much because I'm against it profoundly okay. because of the way because of the way it has been taken. Um, and so if it changes, I, I would be very happy to use it. Yeah, don't hold your breath on that. Yeah. But these two these two uh, through my website, the calendar and the, the Vimeo channel are right now the, the main two avenues. Well, thank you again, Carlos. It's been wonderful to chat to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So lovely chatting with you. 